living with Christ, hearing him teach, and yet rejecting him, even thinking he was out of his mind, God can save anyone. This episode with Jesus' brothers makes it clear. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new six-part series titled Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you might just find yourself amazed and astonished at all that Jesus said and did, both in deed and word. Eyewitness accounts of miraculous healings, casting out demons, stopping storms, walking on water. These are just some of the incredible miracles that Jesus performed. There's no question that Jesus claimed to be God. However, the question that Tom will explore through this series in Mark chapter 3 is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a disillusioned liar, a demonic lunatic, or is he the great I am, the one true and living God, just as he claimed? Well, Tom, the challenge to us today is to see that the scriptures really leave no other option, do they? As C.S. Lewis also pondered, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And it's vital that everyone respond accordingly, isn't it? Bill, that's exactly right. I mean, if you honestly read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus claimed to be God. There's no question about that. And so the, the question is, are those claims true or are they false? The obvious answer is they're true. And that becomes clear as the New Testament unfolds. But we're going to explore why that's true and how the Gospels bring us to that conclusion. A conclusion that demands a response from everyone who encounters Jesus of Nazareth. That's where the text takes us today. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher right here on The Word Unleashed. To anyone who has studied the Gospels and done it honestly with integrity, there really is no question that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God. William Robinson writes, if one takes a historically objective approach to the question, it is found that even secular history affirms that Jesus lived on earth and that he was worshiped as God. He founded a church which has worshiped him for 1900 years. But the question is, were his claims and are his claims to be God legitimate? In the passage that we come to in Mark, we will find that when it comes to those claims, there are only really three basic alternatives. The first alternative is, when you think about his claims, is that his claims are false. The second alternative, of course, is that his claims are true. If his claims are false, then there are two options that grow out of that. Either his claims were false and he knows they're false when he makes them, or his claims are false and he doesn't know that they're false. And of course, if his claims are true, then he is everything that he claimed to be. 
Now, when you look at those three options, his claims are false, and he knows that means he was an evil man. He was a demonically inspired liar because he claimed to be God himself. If his claims are false and he didn't know that they were false, he was deluded. He was on the level of a lunatic, a madman, self-deceived, having a messianic complex that wasn't true at all. If his claims are true, however, and if he is all he claims, then he is nothing less than Lord. Those folks have been and always will be the only options for the claims of Jesus Christ to be God. Mark doesn't record the next major event in Jesus' life. The other gospel writers do. It was the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. There were a number of other significant events in Jesus' life that Mark skips over. He skips immediately from the calling of the Twelve to one of the longest, most significant days in Jesus' life and ministry. When you put the three synoptic accounts together, you remember the word synoptic. You'll hear me use that from time to time. It, it comes from two words, uh, sin together and optic to see, to see together. They're the three gospels, the three of the four gospels that sort of record the same events in, in similar ways. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. Shorter way than saying Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when you hear me say that, that's what I'm talking about, all the gospels except for John. When you put the accounts in the synoptics together, on that one day in Jesus' life, these are the things that happened. In the morning, there was the healing of a demon-possessed man. He was teaching at a home in Capernaum. There was an accusation against him by the Pharisees that he was, in fact, in league with Satan. That same day, he taught all of the parables of Matthew 13, all of those kingdom parables, and then in private, later explained them to his disciples, or several of them. They took a trip across the Sea of Galilee during which Jesus falls asleep, and now you understand why he fell asleep on that day. And a storm comes up in the midst of that trip across the sea, and Jesus calms the storm, but his day's not done. When they get to the other side, on that same day, he heals the demoniacs in the area of the Gerasenes, including the one you remember called Legion. And the demons leave this man and his cohort and go into the pigs which rush into the sea and drown. All of that on one very long day. The reason the gospel writers, I think, really focus on that one day is because on that day, a couple of the most important events in Jesus' ministry occur. A couple of turning points, if you will, in Jesus' life and ministry. In the morning of that day, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. And the response that the leaders give to him marked a huge turning point in what would happen in the future of his life and ministry. In fact, turn there with me because I want you to see this. This plays into the passage we're going to look at in Mark. Look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. This is really how the day began. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. 
so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So understand what happened. That morning, Jesus heals a man, and it's such a dramatic change in this man's life that the people begin to say, what if, what if this is the one? What if this is the Messiah? And the religious leaders respond in verse 24. We're going to look at their response in more detail in Mark chapter 3. In addition, on that same day, Jesus' family members really show their true colors, their true perspective on Jesus' claims. And this is in Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at it in just a moment. Mark captures for us all the drama of these two pivotal turning points on that longest day of Jesus' life in all their color. We're going to look at them together. Remember, Peter who was providing Mark with all this information, was there. He saw it all. He was an eyewitness, and it's an amazing account. Let me read it for you. Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin." because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In amazing clarity, Mark, the gospel writer here, reminds us that every person who reads his record must make a choice of what to do with Jesus, what to do with Jesus' remarkable works and his remarkable claims. And they're always the same choices. Whether you're talking about people in the first century or today, you must make a choice. Is Jesus a lunatic? Is he a demonic liar? Or is he, in fact, the Lord he claimed to be? Those three options are laid out in the passage that I just read in your hearing. Now, the structure of this passage is very interesting. It's the first time Mark has ever done this, but it won't be the last. In a wonderful sort of storytelling technique, 
He starts one story, interrupts it with another, and then returns to complete the first story. He does this on a number of occasions from this time forward. It's kind of a meanwhile, back at the ranch sort of approach. In verse, uh, verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family leaves to come to Capernaum. Verses 22 to 30, the Pharisees attack Jesus there in Capernaum. And in verses 31 to 35, Jesus' family arrives at the house where he's teaching. All this happens on one morning of one day. What's remarkable about the story is that in those three scenes, we are brought face to face with those three responses to Jesus' works and claims. Tonight, I want us to look at the first possible response. It's the response that he must be out of his mind. He is a deluded lunatic. Look at verse 20. It says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. After a number of ministry activities, that aren't recorded in in Mark's gospel in between the calling of the 12 and this event, Jesus and the disciples come home, come home to Capernaum. Just as a reminder of where this is happening, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've talked about this before, but this is the land of Israel. On the northwest side of the corner of the Sea of Galilee is where Capernaum is located where the arrow was pointing. Here is a picture taken from of that corner of the lake, and Capernaum is over there where you see the red circled. You can still see the ruins, um, and to give you a little closer picture, there is an ancient synagogue built shortly after the time of Christ, but on a foundation of the synagogue from the time of Christ. That blue building you see adjacent to it is a Catholic church built over what is almost certainly, there are a few sites you can say this about in Israel, almost certainly the house of the Apostle Peter there in Capernaum. Now, they come to a home. We can't be sure whose home it is. Uh, Like in chapter 2, verse 1, it may be the home, however, of Peter and Andrew. If not, it was a home that someone had loaned Jesus in Capernaum. This is the excavations there. The black arrow is pointing to the ancient synagogue, and the red arrow is pointing to a portion of the ancient restored church built over Peter's original home. Here is a picture of what's left of under that church of Peter's the original structure. Those inside bricks are part of the original structure of Peter's home. It may have been there or it may have been a home at a home that one of his followers had allowed him to use, but Jesus gathers. And again, in, like in chapter 2, as soon as Jesus arrives back in his hometown now of Capernaum, undoubtedly tired, undoubtedly ready for rest, a crowd immediately gathers again. And this time, there was such a large crowd and the ministry was so intense that there isn't room, not only is the access blocked, but there isn't even room for the disciples to make time to eat, to get out of the crush in the crowd. That, by the way, is an artist's reconstruction of what Peter's home may have looked like in the first century, multi-compartmented with areas to meet and for him to teach. By the way, this problem of Jesus not having 
any place to any time to eat a meal was a common one, a normal occurrence for Jesus and the twelve. Later in chapter 6, verse 31, he says to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they were so put upon by the people, so busy in ministry, that they didn't have time to eat. Verse 21 says, when his own people heard of this. Now, before we go any further, we need to answer the question, who are his own people? It's a strange expression, and what does it mean? What does Mark mean by his own people? It's interesting because in the papyri, you remember uh, I told you I spent six of my favorite months of life translating papyri in seminary. Papyri are simply ancient documents that were thrown away, written on from the papyrus, made from the papyrus reed, paper made from the papyrus reed that grew along the Nile River. It was pressed together. The reed was cut in thin slices, pressed together, and that was a writing surface. And in the ancient world, when they were done with those, they threw them in their trash heaps. Because of the low humidity and so forth in certain parts of, of the lands of the Bible, those documents remained and were preserved. And now archaeologists have recovered them. There, I have a couple of books in my library of papyri where I can see how various words in our New Testament were used in secular Greek writings, in letters and title deeds and all kinds of things like that. In the papyri, this uh, word, this expression, his own people, is used of agents or representatives, it's used of friends or associates, or it's used of family, kinsmen, people of one's own household. So which is it used here to mean? Well, because whoever these people are in verse 21, they are leaving wherever they are to go to Jesus, and then on the same long day, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived looking for him, down in verses 31 to 32, the most likely meaning of his people or his own people in verse 21 is Jesus' immediate family. Most commentaries accept that, and those who don't trip over it because they can't imagine Mary participating in this, and we'll talk about Mary in a moment. I think that's a separate story. So this passage then is talking about Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers. Now, maybe you don't know about the rest of Jesus' family. We've talked about it briefly before. Jesus' immediate family is described over in Mark chapter 6. Flip over a couple of pages. Mark chapter 6, verse 2 says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. This is his hometown, verse 1 says. So he's in Nazareth. He's gone back from Capernaum, back to Nazareth for a visit. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Now watch verse 3. Here we learn about his family. These are the hometown crowd, small little town, probably less than 500 people. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, when you look at that verse, you can note several things about Jesus' family. First of all, He had four brothers, and they're all named here. Also, you'll notice that he had at least two sisters. 
We're not told how many sisters, but it's in the plural. So there were at least two. That means that Jesus grew up in a family of at least seven siblings, and if he had more than two sisters, which typically that would be true in a family of four brothers, but not necessarily. At least then, seven siblings growing up together, and maybe more if he had additional sisters. If Joseph, Jesus' father, had died after Jesus' pilgrimage to the temple when he was 12, but before Jesus began his ministry, as it appears in the Gospels, then it would have fallen on Jesus as the oldest person in the home to have been responsible, the oldest man that is in the home, he would have been responsible to teach his younger siblings the Scripture. That responsibility, of course, is outlined in Deuteronomy 6, a passage we'll look at at some point in detail. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Here's this family. There's Mary. Joseph now has died. Jesus is becoming an adult before his ministry begins through his late teen years and, into the, and through his 20s. And he is responsible for this family. He's a carpenter, according to verse 3. He's working as a carpenter. And he is teaching these younger siblings who have been born the Scripture. We don't know at what point Joseph died. Obviously, there was some time that passed because of the number of kids that, that are included here. But at some point, Jesus became responsible for them. No family could have ever had a better teacher, a more consistent example, a more perfect model of God the Father than that family had. Here's the amazing thing, though. Whenever it was that Jesus' siblings first became aware that their older brother claimed to be more than human, they all refused to believe him. Now, note again back in Back in chapter uh, 3, verse 21, it says, When his own people heard of this, his family, his brothers, along with Mary, they went out to take custody of him. Here's how they would have gotten there. These are some roads through Israel. The ridge route is the blue line that cuts across the central ridge. And then there was a road that cut through to Capernaum, that was called the International Highway. It was a major road, and you can see, if you look just to, just to the left of the arrow, you can see the city of Nazareth. It was close by Capernaum. They would have hopped on this International Highway and gone up to Capernaum. It went right through Capernaum. It was a distance of about 20 miles, about five hours brisk walk. So maybe they started out early, early that morning, and they walked to get to Capernaum to take custody of Jesus. Now, the question is, what do they mean? What does this mean to take custody? Well, Mark uses the same Greek word in several other places for arresting someone. In fact, a number of other places. They came to arrest Jesus. Jesus' brothers left Nazareth and went to Capernaum, some five hours' journey away, to arrest Jesus and to restrain him for his own good. Why? Well, verse 21 tells us, for because they were saying he has lost his senses. The Greek word that's translated lost his senses means to be mad, to be crazy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul, speaking of how he's often treated 
says if we are beside ourselves, if we are outside of ourselves, if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. It means to be out of your mind. So Jesus' own brothers, his younger brothers that he had helped raise, have concluded that he is out of his mind, crazy, delusional. By the way, the verb tense here for saying implies that this conclusion had been discussed and repeated often. In the months Jesus has been in his ministry, these brothers have been talking about it again and again, and they have come to the conclusion again and again, repeated to each other, he is out of his mind. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.